Thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. I do welcome you to this Bible study if this is the first time you're joining us. What I would like to do tonight is start another very key subject to a proper interpretation and understanding of Scripture, without which, again, you will lose yourself and get confused and worried when you read Scripture, and that is the covenant. The covenant is key to proper scriptural interpretation. I cannot repeat it enough. It is key to proper scriptural interpretation. It is the silver lining. It is the rope you can hang on to when you hit difficult and sometimes challenging passages in Scripture. Without a proper understanding of the covenant, you and I cannot understand why Jesus Christ came. We cannot understand his action, nor can we understand his plan, nor can we understand how to live a Christian life. This is how important the covenant is. In fact, how do we divide scripture? We speak of the old covenant and the new covenant. It summarizes, it sums up scripture. And yet, for the most part, we're ignorant of it. So we have some grounds to cover. And again, the two recommendations I have for all of you as you go through these Bible studies, if you want them to be fruitful for yourself, number one, I'll, I'll remind you every week, take notes and sh share them with others. Taking notes will help you remember. And number two, for those of you who are Catholics, I cannot emphasize how important, how vital, how enriching, how powerful how grace it is to go to confession as often as you can. I cannot emphasize that enough. And only by experiencing that, you will know what I'm talking about. Give it a shot. Don't be afraid. And, oh, by the way, if you ever thought that you, if you go to confession with a priest, he's going to fall back dead after what you've told him, relax. There isn't anything you're going to tell a priest that he hasn't heard before. Okay? I cannot emphasize enough how much you can benefit from confession in order to understand Scripture. Let's now start by defining a covenant. What is a covenant? First of all, I would like to point out to you that the meaning of a covenant in modern living in the United States has been lost. We do not have a feel, we don't have an understanding of what a covenant is anymore. We've lost it. 
for a variety of reasons. I don't have time to get into those tonight. At its very basic definition, a covenant is an agreement between two parties. It's an agreement between two parties. And in an ancient Near East custom, that doesn't only include, therefore, the Hebrews or the Jews and the Israelites. Again, for those of you who are joining us, I will repeat this one more time. Hebrews, Jews, and Israelites are not the same. Don't confuse them. Hebrews are descendants of Eber, uh, the forefather of Abraham. The Israelites are descendants of Israel, Jacob. And the Jews are descendants of Judah, the son of Jacob. Do not confuse them or else you will not understand certain passages in the New Testament and the Old Testament as well. Now, not only to the Hebrews, but to all Near East civilizations, a covenant had five parts to it. Five parts. First, identification of the parties. They introduce each other. They are listed as participants in the covenant. Second, a historical prologue where the deeds establishing the worthiness of the dominant party is established. The dominant party, not both. So the covenant has this notion of one who is in a dominant position. And his deeds to justify his worthiness are listed. Okay? Three, conditions of the agreement. This is not a free-for-all agreement. There are conditions that need to be followed. Four, rewards and punishments in regard to keeping the conditions. And five, disposition of the documents where each party receives a copy of the agreement. So those are the five elements known to an ancient Near East covenant. I'll repeat them. Identification of parties, historical prologue where the deeds establishing the worthiness of the dominant party is established, conditions of the agreement, rewards and punishments, and then a copy. And typically, that copy is sealed. It has a seal associated with it. Now, another very important element to keep in mind when we speak of the covenant. In Hebrew, if I want to make a covenant, the way I would say that literally in Hebrew is, I will seven myself. I will make seven of me. That's the Hebrew way of saying, I'll make a covenant. In fact, the root word is Shavah, which is related to the word Sabbath. Okay, the seventh day. That is why the number seven is the number of perfection. Because it is related to the covenant. In fact, when we hit symbolism, when we start talking about the symbolism in the book of Revelation, you will see that seven is literally synonymous for covenant. Right? Just as today, most of the time we'll say Kleenex when we mean a piece, a white piece of um, tissue. It's become synonymous. So seven is synonymous with the covenant. And that is why God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. The rest of God is not him resting because he was tired. The rest of God really truly means when we say, I will rest from all my troubles. It's peace, contentment, joy, satisfaction. It is heavenly joy. That is the rest that is indicated there. And why did God rest on the seventh day? Because he was signing a, he was establishing a covenant with his creature to make his creature, man and woman, sons and daughters of himself. So that's the other important element of a covenant. 
A covenant, unlike a contract, is an exchange of people, not an exchange of goods. So a contract is an exchange of goods. I give you 20 bucks, you give me 30 pounds of broccoli. You don't give me the 20 pounds, I won't give you, I won't give you the, 20, the, 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 the 20 bucks, you won't give me the, the broccoli. The important thing about a contract is that by its very nature, by its very nature, its conditions are revocable. Let me put it more specifically. If the conditions of the contract are not satisfied, are violated, the contract is annulled. It's broken. It comes to an end. You're with me? However, when a covenant is established, it cannot be broken. That is extremely important for us to understand. When a covenant is established, it cannot be broken. Especially when we establish the covenant with God. Why? Think about it. It's actually very logical. Remember what I said about the five conditions of the covenant? I said that his, the second in his historical prologue were the deeds establishing the worthiness of the dominant parties are listed. So what makes the covenant reality? What empowers the covenant? It is the worthiness of the dominant party. Hence, if the dominant party is God, and if God enters into a covenant with his creature, therefore God himself is guaranteeing that covenant, the covenant can certainly not, cannot be broken, because that would indicate that God is not perfect. You're with me? Do you see the logic? Now, let me give you, before we get into the covenant themselves, an example where the covenant played a major role and today is forgotten. When you go to a court of law and you call to the stand as a witness, typically you're presented with the Bible or in any other sacred book, and you're asked to put your right hand on that book, raise the, the left hand, and then you say what? Say it slowly. I swear. I want you to think about that word for a second. I swear. All right. When you want to use your own trustworthiness in proving a point, you say, or you used to say, I give you my word. So now, you've put your own word at risk. However, when you want to engage someone else's trustworthiness, you don't say, I give you his word. You can't do that. It's not yours to give. What do you do? You make yourself, essentially, a vassal to that other person. You're basically saying to that other person, I give you my fidelity, you will now vouchsafe me. You follow me? That is swearing. So when you put your hand on the Bible, raise the other hand, and you say, I swear, you're really saying, I swear by what is in this book, not by my own trustworthiness, 
by what is in this book that I will say the truth, all the truth, and only the truth. You might add, so help me God, and what is the part that is typically dropped? Or I'll be damned. Or I'll be damned. Why are you putting your hand on that book? You're essentially saying this, okay, I'm going to testify. But you don't know me from Adam or Eve. Why would you trust me? And why would I trust you? So I'm going to invoke the name of God who is perfect and just. And I'm saying to you that as a witness, witness, if I say the truth and you're thinking and you think that I'm lying, may all the blessings recorded in this book come upon me. Because I'm faithful to the covenant that I'm entering in right now as I take that oath. I'm taking an oath with God. But if I'm lying, may all the curses recorded in this book come upon me. That is why the court of law <clears throat> used to be trustworthy when everyone understood the covenant. Because everyone understood that you're invoking the authority of God. The other covenant with which you're familiar is that of marriage. When a man and a woman enter a church and, and enter into a covenant of marriage, you notice that that covenant involves three parties. The man, the woman, and God. Otherwise, there would not be the church. The priest or the celebrant would stand there as a witness to God. And what do they do? They invoke the name of God. All right? They're essentially invoking the name of God. They're saying to God, we want you to be the dominant party in this covenant, and we want you to ratify that covenant and make it work. And God says, I will by my name. So now God has put his seal on that covenant. And he's saying, if you are faithful to this covenant that you've taken in my name, I will bless you. But if you are not faithful to this covenant that, is, that you've taken in my name, you get divorced. No, he doesn't say that. Because the covenant cannot be broken. That's why there is no such thing as a divorce. Divorce means that we as humans have the power to break a seal that has the divine name on it. And we do not have that power. Because the covenant has not been ratified by us, but by God. And the creature cannot break that which the Creator has ratified. So God will say, if you're not faithful, I will curse you. I want you to suspend judgment at that moment, because, because I, based on my experience, I can tell you that you do not understand what I just said. You're probably not understanding what I just said when I said God says, I will curse you. This is one of the typical difficulties that folks coming to Bible study have with this notion. So I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. But don't worry, we're going to spend two lectures dealing with that specific issue, which, has, which is central to the book of Revelation. So to sum, summarize what we said so far, <clears throat> a covenant is distinct from a contract in that a contract is an exchange of goods subject to agreed-upon conditions, whereas a covenant is an exchange of persons. 
a contract's purpose is to increase one's wealth, whereas the purpose of a covenant is to increase one's family. One is temporal, material, and conditional. The other is eternal, spiritual, and unconditional. There are five key covenants in Scripture. And tonight we're going to spend time going over three of them. We're just going to familiarize ourselves with them, locate them, understand what the context was and what they mean. And then hopefully in the following two lectures we'll spend time over their implication. The first one is with Adam and Eve. Genesis 1, 27-29. God created man in his image. In the divine image he created him. Male and female he created them. God blessed them. That is covenantal language. Blessing and curses are always related to the covenant. Anytime you hear God blessed, it is in the context of a covenant. It's not God patting them on the head and saying, you're cute, I love you. It isn't God saying, oh well, God bless you. I mean, I bless you. Now go do whatever you want. Our problem, going back now to the four senses of Scripture, is when we hit a passage like this one, God blessed them, we understand it literally, meaning, oh, well, God gave them, you know, He did the sign of the cross, or something like that. We really don't understand what that means, because we don't have the context of the covenant around that. But once we understand the, 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 the nature of the covenant, then blessing on God's part take on a whole different meaning. It takes its central meaning, and its essential meaning. God blessed them, saying, Be fertile and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and all the living things that move on the earth. God also said, see, I give you every seed-bearing plant all over the earth and every tree that has seed-bearing fruit on it to be your food. So what is the context of the blessing? The context of the blessing is, first and foremost, be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. Guess what? God didn't say, be fruitful and multiply until 1976 where you can stop doing that. Or, be fruitful and multiply until there are six billion of you on this planet. Then you can stop. That's what I mean when I say the covenant is utterly unconditional and we are bound by it. Remember what I said about the literal sense the four and the three spiritual senses? So the literal sense here, in the very literal sense, is be fruitful and multiply. Have lots of kids. In the spiritual senses, it means make converts. Bring them to the church. One carries over into the other. The old covenant, through the spiritual senses, typically carries over into the new covenant. So one error I want to warn you about right now, and if you hold to the four senses, you will not make that error, is to think that there is this stark division between the old and the new. Oh, well, that's old covenant. We don't have to worry about it. Now we have the new covenant. Jesus came, holding a guitar, sat around the fire. We all sang beautiful songs. We had a hug. 
sang Kumbaya, and now, you know, we're happy. Uh-uh. That command still holds today. What does that mean to you and I on the moral sense? Morally, what does that mean? It means a very simple, basic reality. It means that the day you and I are going to stand for our personal judgment, so the moment of death, when we die, the instant we die, that's the teaching of the Catholic Church, that the instant we die, we will be faced with our personal judgment. And right there and then, God will pronounce, Jesus Christ, Lord and King, will pronounce final judgment about our destination. Heaven or hell. Alright? Now how will he go about doing that? Are there criteria he's going to use to determine whether what we've done is in accord to his will? Yeah, the covenant. Have we lived according to the covenant? Have we obeyed the covenant? Have we or have we not? And so what is the first command he gave? Be fruitful and multiply. The first question he's going to ask you is, if you're married, have you been fruitful? Have you multiplied? You're still bound by this, just as Adam and Eve were. Because that is eternal law. It is law. It's a divine law. It is Holy Scripture. It is the Word of God. It is divine. It will not pass away. So either we're living according to the covenant or we're not. And ignorance is no excuse. We can't be ignorant because we are commanded to know our faith. We must know it and we must live it. That's how the wheels of the covenant work in ancient times and today. It hasn't changed. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and all living things that move on the earth. And then he said, I give you every seed-bearing plant all over the earth and every tree that has seed-bearing fruit on it to be your food. Right? And that why, that's why people will conclude that God is a vegetarian. Right? He just told them you can eat from the plants. Don't touch the animals. Not quite. This is a typical, this is a typical misinterpretation of Scripture because all we do is we take the verse, we yank it out of its context, and we make it say whatever we feel. So text taken out of context is pretext. Okay? We can't do that. To understand what that means, we have to go to Genesis 2, 8, 17, where the covenant is reiterated in a slightly different way, but just as interesting. Genesis 2, 8, 17, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and he placed there the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God made various trees grow that were delightful to look and at and good for food, with the tree of life in the middle of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God, verse 15, took the man and settled him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate and, and to till it and guard it. And he gave him this order, this command. You are free to eat from any of the trees of the garden except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. From that tree you shall not eat. The moment you shall eat from it, you will surely die. You see the structure of the covenant. The introduction... We had it in chapter 1 where God is seen as the creator, as the one who brings forth everything. And he is the creator of man. Therefore, he is the dominant party. And then we see the introduction of the second party, Adam. And then we see the conditions 
of the covenant. I'm going to put you there and you can eat from everything. There's two things you must do. You must till and guard and you cannot eat from that tree. Now I can spend four hours, no, eight hours just on those verses. And I'm going to try not to. It's almost like a black hole for me. Because there's so much here. But I cannot resist to point a couple of really important things. The first one is that you notice that God created man, then planted Eden, then brought man into the garden. Right? Why didn't God create Eden and create man in Eden? Why did he create him outside the garden and then he brought him inside the garden? Temptation? There's no temptation at that point. No, there's no temptation because man hasn't fallen yet. We'll, get, we'll talk a little bit more about man's condition. Again, the literal sense can be illuminated by the spiritual sense. Why? Because when he created man, man was perfect, yet he brought him into the Garden of Eden to indicate that in his current state, he is yet to be brought in in the presence of the beatific vision. So, he was created outside of Eden and brought in Eden materially and anagogically, the sense leading, leading, leading to the sense that has to do with the end. Even in his perfect material state, he had yet to be brought in the presence of the beatific vision. The vision holding the Trinity, holding God as he is. Alright? When God gave Solomon the command to build a temple... He commanded him to build, to hew the stones of the temple, and this church here may be able to hold four of these stones. This is how big the stones of the Temple of Solomon were. They were huge. But they were, they were to be hewn away from Jerusalem at a sufficient distance so that no one could hear the hewing. Why? Because, you know, Solomon had you know, sensitive ears and, and he was bothered by it. Uh-uh. What does St. Paul say about us? We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the stones. Right? St. Peter also in his first letter speaks of us as being as the stones who will make up the temple of God. Where are we hewn? Far from heaven. On earth. So we're hewn. We're prepared to be fit to enter the temple far away from our final home, far away from the heavenly Jerusalem on earth. So just as Adam was created far away from Eden and brought into Eden, just as those stones were hewn away from Jerusalem and brought into Jerusalem, just as we are created on earth to be brought into heaven, just as we are created under original sin outside the church and by the sacraments are brought into the church. Okay? So, why, what, what is the purpose of Scripture then? The purpose of Scripture is to present us with the ways in which God deals with us through the covenant. Scripture is to teach us about the patterns of behavior that we ought to have before God and the way God deals with us and His love for a wayward, stubborn, willful, despondent, disobedient child. The second point I'd like to make is that God brought 
Adam and placed him in the garden and he said two things. You will till it, you will guard it. You will till, you will guard. Let's deal with the guarding. Is there at that point in time any other human being out there? Okay, is Adam alone? Who is he guarding it from? Alright, the devil. Now the moral sense. What is the Garden of Eden then? What is it? In the moral sense, what does that represent? Our soul, precisely. Who is Adam in our soul? Who's the new Adam? Christ. Who is in our soul then? Who's supposed to be in our soul? Jesus Christ, the life of grace. What is he doing there? He's guarding and he's tilling. He's tilling. He's the one who will get us to heaven. He's the one who will transform us by his grace, through faith, for us to reach heaven. It's his work, not ours. The work we do is the fruit of the life of grace in us. It shows that something is living inside. Let's go back to another first one. Till. Isn't that, wasn't that paradise? Eden? Isn't that Eden? Isn't that paradise? Alright. You're going on a cruise. On vacation. To the Caribs. You get there, and as soon as you step on the beach, beautiful beach, coral, pure water, temperature's perfect, you get on the beach and you're handed a broom. And you spend your vacation cleaning the beach. Is that your idea of vacation? Okay. Is there something wrong with the picture? That's supposed to be Eden. That is paradise. What, 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 what is he doing there? Did God tell him, you can suntan and then, you know, watch TV? And have a good time? No. You till. What is tilling? Work. Work. It's work. So therefore, what is the purpose of work? What is the purpose of work? The purpose of work is to sanctify us. We are sanctified through our work. We are made saints through work. Work is not an invention of the devil. Work is not a bad thing. Work is not a thing that we get rid of so we can go and retire. Those are pagan ideas. A Christian man is a man who will work in the field of the Lord till the day he dies. You understand that? You see how the world will twist our understanding of values and then will turn them topsy-turvy, and will make evil good and good evil? You see how the world will tell you, don't have too many kids? Become rich fast and go and, and, and have fun, think about yourself, be selfish? You see how it's presenting to you the goods of this world as the ultimate good that you have to go for? Be sober tells us St. Peter, pray and be sober. Know what you're up to. Know your faith and live it. Last question. Okay, you're God. Actually, let me turn it into something a little bit simpler. You have a kid. 
and you gave this kid his room. And in this room, there's a variety of toys that you gave the kid. Okay? And right in the middle of this variety of toys, you placed this shining thing of magic that looks really fun to play with. And then you, you tell the kid, you can play with all the toys in this room, but as soon as you touch that thing of magic that I put there, I'm going to spank you. And you go tell this to your friend. What do you think your friend is going to think of you? Are you sadistic or something? Well, what are you doing? Why are you, why are you doing that to your kid? Take that thing away and let him play in peace. Doesn't sound what this is what God is doing? I mean, couldn't it, I mean, why did God plant that tree there? Couldn't you have said, okay, Adam, here it is, till it and guard it, and everything is yours, and then go ahead. Have a field day. Why put that tree in the middle of this thing and tell him you can't touch it? Anytime you touch it, I'm gonna swat you. Why? Discipline, obedience. Teach him about himself. Testing. Testing. We're forgetting one slight small element here in this whole picture. Has Adam sinned thus far? No. What does that mean? What is the effect of original sin? What did original sin do to us? Okay, very briefly, I'm going to put it to you as a picture. Because, again, I can't spend too much time on this. I've spent more time than I really wanted. Before Adam sinned, his faculties, meaning the imagination, the emotions, and reason, imagination, emotion, and reason, or intellect, were all of them serving the will. The will. So you can picture the will driving this four-door sedan, and imagination, reason, and emotions as three well-behaved kids who are looking out of the windows are giving indication to the will where to go. And everyone is working harmoniously. That's before the fall. Therefore, every faculty in Adam was geared towards doing God's will. He did not suffer from concupiscence. What is concupiscence? It is the disorder of the senses. Okay? The disorder, he didn't have that. He didn't have that problem of, oh look, I bought two pounds of Godiva chocolate and I only ate a pound and a half. Alright? He didn't have those, inclina those disordered inclinations to do something which is not according to right reason. So, you take, for instance, the appetites, right? Emotions are appetites, they're all related. You, you know, you take, for instance, the appetite for food. What is the purpose of this appetite according to right reason? It is, its purpose is to nourish ourselves. We eat to be nourished. We need it for our, for our well, well-being. So, it, an ordered appetite for food is one that accords with right reason, meaning that it's one that accords with the finality of a human being, what a human being has been made for. A disordered 
appetite for food is one where we eat because food is good and solely for that reason okay now that becomes disordered so Adam had none of those disorders therefore to him at that moment in time there was no temptation he was obedient to God's grace and to God's will and he was in accord with God's with God's plan now why did he why did he fall and why did he disobey that's a whole story that's completely separate from what we're talking about you can think about it but just understand that what God did was not unjust he did something that was in accord with the dignity of the human being and his nature before the fall alright and, and incidentally this is precisely the reason why he had to get them out of Eden he got them out of Eden not because he was a harsh and, and um, tyrannical master he got them out of Eden because the temptation for them was too strong after the fall if before the fall they had fell and went for something they were not supposed to touch how much more after they would have repeated the same sin over and over again therefore it was important for them to be kicked out of Eden okay now the last thing I'll say about this particular covenant is that it applies to the family this is a covenant that touches upon the family because we, images, we image God as a family as a man and a woman united together in one flesh we image God we've touched upon that multiple times I'm not going to go over this now as far as the blessings he made man immortal impassable meaning that he did not man did not feel hunger or tiredness or sickness or disease or any, any of those things free from concupiscence and ignorance uh, so just to remember this Eve's intellect far exceeds the intellect of any of us here her intellect and her, her, her power to understand far exceeds ours because she was born with original sin okay? and she didn't have the disorders we have today and he made him Lord of the earth Lord of the earth now remember what I said that there are conditions right we've talked about the blessings let's talk about the curses the curse was death God told him if you touch it you will die and so in Genesis 3 14 19 we see that apply here in particular he says to the woman he said I will intensify the pangs of your childbearing in pain shall you bring forth children yet your urge shall be for your husband and he shall be your master that particular that particular verse is very profound and it's a very apt description of disordered relationship as you see them today in the world very apt this is not God's plan for the way a man and a woman ought to conduct themselves in a Christian marriage we saw that last time this is how they will conduct themselves under the curse and it's a direct consequence of their action I don't have time to get into this to the man because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree of which I had forbidden you to eat cursed be the ground because of you in toil shall you eat its yield all the days of your life thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to you as you eat from the plants of the field by the sweat of your face shall you get bread to eat until you return to the ground from which you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return so that's the curse 
that is imposed on Adam and Eve and on all of us. Why? That's the other important principle of the covenant. When a man and a woman enter into a covenant of marriage with God, the blessings that God will impart upon them will go to their children and the curses that God impart upon them will go to their children because we're family. This is one of the hardest things to understand in individualistic America. I did it my way type thing. No. You have to do it the family way. What you do affects your family. Incidentally, talking about the impact that the parents have on their children, we know a lot about the impact that the parents have on their children emotionally, psychologically, etc. You should also be mindful of one simple fact, that if a parent curses a child, if he curses a child, that curse will stand, will take effect. It's very hard to break. Not even exorcism can break that curse sometimes. On the child. You need to realize the power of that relationship. Father Armos, who, is, who was a leading exorcist in, in, uh, in, uh, in Rome, we've seen about 30 cases of obsession, possession, and uh, <clears throat> oppression, relate three cases of cursing. One was when a man and a woman got married and the parents were opposed to this marriage. On the day of the marriage, the father took the bride aside and laid upon her head every conceivable curse he could think of. And every single one of them happened. Do not underestimate the power of blessing from grandparents and parents and children and the power of cursing. I am saying that especially to the folks who are from, the, from a Middle Eastern background, because oftentimes, folks from the Middle Eastern background, when they're upset, will say certain things about their children. Do not say them. They're very powerful. Don't think there are empty words. They're not. This, goes to sh this, this shows how much we have, we do not under understand the, the, the power of the covenant and its implication in our daily lives. Now, that covenant with Adam was actually ratified, meaning repeated with Noah. In Genesis 9, 1 through 17, we see the covenant with Noah. It's a repetition of the covenant with Adam. And it's still a covenant that applies to the family, but it's post the fall. And it has some interesting elements in it. God blessed, again, God blessed Noah. Remember, God blessed Noah. That's a prelude to a covenant. It's a covenantal blessing. And said to them, again, be fertile and multiply and fill the earth. It's repeated again. The same command. Dread fear of you shall come upon all the animals of the earth and all the birds of the air, upon all the creatures that move about on the ground and all the fishes of the sea. Into your power they are delivered. In other words, he's giving to them all the animals. Whereas to Adam and Eve, he only gave the plants. Why? Very simple. Remember what I said about work and the importance of work and how it sanctifies us? What did Adam work at? What was he supposed to do? Take care of what? Plants. That's why he could only eat from the plants. What did Noah do on the, in the ark? What did he have on the, in the ark? Animals. Okay. Let me ask this question. How many of you have taken care of an elephant? Okay. Think about what happens when the elephant eats. 
what, is, what does the elephant do after he's eaten? Okay? There's buckets and buckets of that stuff. Truckloads of it. And it's in the boat. Okay? No, I deserved it. He deserved it. Hippos and lions and horses. And there's seven people on this place. Seven. There were seven. For six months. Taking care of animals. That's why God gave the animals to them because it was the fruit of their work and through them to us. However, there are a couple of restrictions. Every creature that is alive shall be yours to eat. I give them all to you as I did the green plants. Every creature that is alive shall be yours to eat. No restriction. It's a blessing. So sometimes people will explain that as saying, well, you know, that's because man has sinned and he couldn't just stay away from blood. And so God condescended. No, no, no. It's a blessing. It's part of a blessing. All right? Only flesh with its lifeblood still in it you shall not eat. Only flesh with its lifeblood still in it you shall not eat. From which we have today the kosher. Yeah. For your own lifeblood too, I will demand an accounting for every animal I will demand it. And from man in regard to his fellow man, I will demand an accounting for human life. God will demand an accounting for every animal. So we are stewards of this earth and we're supposed to take care of it. We're supposed to treat every animal with dignity. Okay? Be, be fertile then and multiply, abound on the earth and subdue it. Repeat it twice. And then he says, See, I am now establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you. And with every living creature that was with you, all the birds and the various tame and wild animals. He establishes the covenant and what does he say? He says, I will not destroy the world by flood anymore. And what is the sign of that? Right. The rainbow, right? Okay. A couple of things that I want to point out to you here. The first one. Notice what he says. Only flesh with its lifeblood still in it, you shall not eat. Right? Okay. Let's turn quickly. I don't have the passage with me, but let's turn quickly to John chapter 6. I'll read you something, and you'll see the covenant implication of that passage. <clears throat> the Gospel of John, chapter 6. Alright. In John 6, Jesus says... I, I'm, I'm going to get that. Just give me a second. Alright. Alright. Starting verse 52. Verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat. And then Jesus says, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, amen, amen. It's an oath. I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and now listen carefully, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Drink his blood. We don't understand this passage covenantally. Why? Because we don't have Noah in our heads. We don't have the covenants built in us. But suppose for a second that you did. Suppose for a second that what I just read to you from the covenant from Noah is embedded in you. And you're living by that covenant. And here's this man telling you, you have no life in you unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, as if it wasn't bad enough, and he makes it a point to add, drink 
his blood. Never mind being horrified by the notion of eating someone's flesh and drinking his blood on a natural level. Think covenantally. If you were to do that, what would happen to you? From a covenantal point of view, you're breaking the covenant that God gave. Incidentally, that covenant, that part of the covenant, you're not going to eat flesh with blood in it, is repeated specifically to Israel by Moses. So first it's given to Noah, to all mankind, and then specifically to Israel. So it's repeated twice. How, what would happen to you if you were to break that covenant? What do you have effectively done to yourself? You've excommunicated yourself. You're excommunio, outside of the community, outside of the family. You understand? You've put outside of the family. Which family? No? At this point in time, whose family is this? And, by extension, Adam's family. Adam's family. You following me? At this point in time with Noah, you're still part of Adam's family. When Christ comes and he says, unless you drink of the blood of the Son of Man, eat his flesh and drink his blood, you have no life in you, if you were to do that, what happens to you? You're, you're leaving the family of Adam so as to do what? To enter the family of the new Adam. For unless you leave the family of Adam, your old self, your old family, your attachment to this world, you will never enter the family of the new Adam. And that is precisely what Christ is going to affect in us. Hmm? We call the Eucharist what? It's a what? It's a sa sacrament. What is sacramentum in Latin? What does it mean? Oath. It's an oath. So what are the sacraments then? They are the sevenfold signs of the oath that Jesus Christ took on the cross to effect salvation in us. It is the sign of his covenant through which he will make his promise a reality in us, provided we correspond to his grace. You understand? You understand? That's how they saw it, and that's why it's so difficult for them to understand. What is this man telling us? He wants us to break the covenant. Yeah, that's exactly what I want you to do. I want you to break the old covenant in order to enter the new. By the way, Paul in Galatians says nothing different. We'll get to that passage in a minute. The same issue that Paul had with them. And I'll get to that more in detail later. The other point I want to make to you is that remember, we said that God signed his covenant with what? With the rainbow. Right? Rainbow. Okay. If you were to turn to the book of the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation, chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, we read, Then I watched while the Lamb broke open the first of the seven seals. Hmm? The seven seals. Seven is always the sign of the covenant. So this is a document that is covenantal in nature. And he just opened the first one of them. What happens then? And I heard one of the four living creatures cry out in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there was a white horse. And its rider had what? What do you read? 
get a boat. Hmm, say John, that's kind of really interesting. In this grand vision of yours, you're telling us, oh look, the writer had a bow. Okay, I mean, why don't you tell us the color of his socks while you're at it? Why does he point to us that he had a bow? Why not a sword? Why not an axe? Why a bow? And furthermore, the point that is often missed by commentators, where on earth or in heaven did he get the bow? Where did he get the bow from? You'll see when we go to Ezekiel, Ezekiel had the same vision that John has, but Ezekiel has it from below. And so it looks like it's a, it's, it's, it's a sky, right? Whereas John has it from above, it looks like a sea. And both of them see the throne, and on the throne, some a figure like that of a man, and behind it, what? The rainbow. The bow that God hung as a sign of the covenant he took with Noah. Now, that man on that white horse is sent to conquer. And what does he take with him? The bow. The covenantal bow. Do you understand? God has unstrung, has strung his bow, and he's going in battle. And therefore, this is a covenantal judgment on all of humanity because it goes all the way back to the covenant he made with Noah. That's why there is a bow. You following me? If you have a covenantal perspective, a lot of what happens in the book of the Revelation, the book of Revelation starts to make a lot of sense. That's why we need to build this understanding. And I can't do justice to all the covenant in four lectures. You have some work to do on your own. You can use those passages I'm referring to right now as a, <clears throat> a point to further your study in them. The third covenant I'm going to cover is that of Abraham. In Genesis 17, 1 through 22, we hear the first covenant that God made with Abraham, with Abram actually. His name was still Abram. God said, Scripture says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God the Almighty. Walk in, walk in my presence and be blameless. Call to holiness now. We didn't have that before. Now that's introduced. Because man has sinned. And now there's a call to holiness. Between you and me, I will establish my covenant. I will multiply you exceedingly. Here we go again. This business of multiplying, be fruitful. Right? When God has an idea, he doesn't change his mind. My covenant with you is this. You are to become the father of a host of nations. So now we're going to move from the covenant as a family to the covenant as a tribe. Because all the members of the tribe of Abram are going to be part of that covenant. So the covenant now is extended forward to all the tribe. And furthermore, there is a promise that he will become the father of nations. I will render you exceedingly fertile. I will make nations of you. Kings shall stem from you. I will maintain my covenant with you and your descendants after you throughout the ages as an everlasting pact to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. He says, he doesn't say you will maintain. He says, I will maintain. Me, God, I will make that happen. Not you, me. And most of the time, through your unfaithfulness and your sinfulness and your brokenness, I will carry my plan forth. 
and it will come to fruition. Now, on your part, you and your descendants, after, after you must keep my covenant through the ages. This is my covenant with you and your descendants. And then he tells them, every male among you shall be circumcised. When you're eight days old, you will be circumcised. And he, tells me, and he speaks of Sarah, and he says, I will bless her, I will give you a son by her, him also will I bless, he shall give rise to nations, and rulers of people shall issue from him. And then Abraham says, can a child be born to a man who is 100 years old, or can Sarah give birth at 90? And Abraham said to God, let but Ishmael live on by your favor. He's saying, God, you know what, you, you, you muffed up. You're not getting this right. I'm 100 years old, she's 90 years old. I think what you really meant is Ishmael, the son that I already have, from, uh, from, uh, from Hagar, right? So he's kind of correcting God. Look at God's patience. Okay? God says, Nevertheless, your wife Sarah is to bear your son. Look at his patience and his forbearing. Here's a man, he's 100 years old, he's been living, he's been walking with God, God showed him signs, and still he's got problems thinking God can make something happen. Right? God, you're not altogether there. And let me tell you exactly how it's going to, let me tell you my plan. I think it's Mother Angelica who says, you want to make God laugh? Tell him your plans. Here you go, exhibit A. And said, nevertheless, your wife Sarah is to bear your son, and you shall call him Isaac. I will maintain my covenant with him as an everlasting pact to be his God and the God of his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I am hearing you. I'm hearing you. I hereby bless him. I will make him fertile and multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of twelve chieftains and I will make of him a great nation. But my covenant I will maintain with Isaac. Right? God promised Abraham that he will give him the land from the Nile to the Euphrates. If you think about it, the Holy Land, the Promised Land, doesn't cover all that vast distance. It's a small piece, right? So who gets this big piece, this big chunk of land? The Arabs. Who, who is the father of the Arabs? Ishmael. That's the promise that God made. To Ishmael, I will give material blessing. But to Isaac, I will give supernatural blessing. You get a, piece, a small piece of land. Not the best, effectively. Because really what I want to give to the descendants of Isaac and through them, all those who will come to believe in me, is heaven. You understand? Now, Genesis 21, 9-13. Sarah noticed the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, has born to Abraham, playing with her son Isaac. So she demanded to Abraham, drive out that slave and her son. No son of that slave is going to share the inheritance with my son Isaac. So Sarah, with her eyes, saw that Ishmael was 13, is playing with little baby Isaac. Okay? We've had cases of fratricide before, when one brother killed another. Hmm? So she says, get her out. Throw her out, her and her son. Now, Abram was attached to Ishmael. He was greatly distressed, especially on account of his son Ishmael. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed about the boy or about your slave woman. Heed the demands of Sarah, no matter what she's asking of you, for it is through Isaac that descendants shall bear your name. And here's a very important point that you and I must learn. It's a hard lesson, but it's a very important one. Let me ask this question. Morally, is the action of Sarah right? Yes. 
Is God saying what Sarah is doing right? No. She's the one who told Abraham, okay, I can't get a son by me, so you're gonna get, you get, I'm going to give you a son through my slave. It was a common, common um, uh, thing to do in the Near East. She's the one who said that. So he did it. He's got a son. He loves Ishmael. He considers him to be his son. Now she says, get him out. Is that right? No, it isn't. Nevertheless, because of the marital covenant between the two of them, because of the covenant of marriage that links them together and the two of them to God, God will still bring blessing through that marital covenant. Therefore, as married men and women, it is our duty to work through difficulties and not seek divorce. Okay? We're duty-bound to call upon God. If you have a problem with your husband and you're about to kill him, you can go and stand before the picture of, blessed, of, of our Lord and Our Lady and you tell them, point blank, this is your marriage, you take care of it. You fix it. Because that's the, the part of the covenant. You call upon the graces that God has created, especially for marriage, through specific channels of grace to help you grow in holiness. You don't give up. Now, there are specific cases where a woman would be duty-bound to have her husband leave the house in case he's violent and he's attacking her children, his children. Out of love for him, she must seek separation, and even if it's required, civil divorce. But never should she think that she's actually now free to remarry. And then Genesis 22:15 through 18, the Lord's messenger called to Abraham from heaven and said, after Abraham had taken his son Isaac and willingly sacrificed him, and God stopped him, God says the following, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you acted as you did, and not, not withholding from me your beloved son, I will bless you abundantly and make your descendants as countless as the stars of the sky and the sands of the seashore. Your descendants shall take possession of the gates of their enemies. And in your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall find blessing. All this because you obeyed my command. I want to point out one thing for you. This is, uh, again, this is 22, 15 through 18 in the book of Genesis. I swear by myself. I swear by my name. Isn't that odd? God is swearing. We swear by God's name. Who's God to swear by? There's no one above him. So he swears by his name. Who's his name? What is the only word that God has? The Lord Jesus Christ, right? So what is God doing when he swears by his name? He's putting himself under what? He's putting himself under a curse. He's saying, if this doesn't happen... I will be cursed. You understand? He's putting himself, by taking that oath, that he will make that happen, he's saying, I'm going to make it happen, even if this means that I'm putting myself under a curse. Okay? That's the importance of this covenant. It's, one of the, it's the most important of all three I read to you. God is swearing by his name that he will make this happen. He will bless Abraham and all the nations through him and all those who will come to believe through him. Right? It will be a blessing. Your descendants shall take possession of the gates of their enemies. Your descendants. What does that mean? It's one family. It's one family. God has only one family. Not 33,000 of them. Now here's an interesting thing. 
in Deuteronomy 21. In the Deuteronomy lists a whole section of cursing. We're going to see those on all of Israel, the whole community. All the curses apply to the entire community of Israel, with one exception. There's only one curse, one, that applies to an individual, to a person. And here it is. Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23. If a man guilty of capital offense is put to death and his corpse hung on a tree, it shall not remain on the tree overnight. You shall bury it the same day. Otherwise, since God's curse rests on him who hangs on the tree, you will defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So whomever hangs from the tree has God's curse resting on him. Who hung from the tree? Jesus Christ. You see that? He made it happen. He took on the curse. And by the way, in Gethsemane, Jesus Christ relived the curse of Adam and Eve. How do we know that? First, what did God say to Adam and Eve? Thorn and thistles shall, it, shall, shall earth bring forth to you. What did he have on his head? The crown of thorns. By the sweat of your brow, you will make a living. What did Jesus do in the, in the, in the garden? He sweated blood. And you are dust, and to dust you shall return. He died on the cross. He took on the curse of Adam on our behalf. Because he promised. That's his promise. And the sacraments are the way in which he makes this promise come alive in you and me. So no matter how weak, how sinful, how tired we are, his promise through his sacraments his oath that he took will bring us to everlasting life, provided we believe. That is the power of the covenant. We, when we are baptized, you see, when we are baptized, notice, when, when God told Abraham, you and all the men, 13 years and above, I'm sorry, 8 weeks and above, right? 8 weeks Babies and men, all of you have entered into my covenant. Why? Because it's family. It's family. So the notion that we don't baptize babies, meaning we keep them outside the covenant of God until they make up their mind, is precisely one that is born in this country out of this individualistic view of our faith. Me and the Lord. No. That is not biblical. That is a notion that is completely alien to the Hebrews to the Jews, to Israel. Makes no sense. Everything applies to me and my kids, all of us, because it's a covenant, because we're family, because we're God's family. So if God gives me good, that good naturally goes to all my children. Therefore, in baptism, what happens in baptism? In baptism, first of all, you're exercised, meaning original sin and the power of the devil is taken out of your soul and the grace of God floods your soul through baptism and you are now declared a new creature in the blood of Christ. So Christ paid the ransom. He paid the price of ransoming you and I from original sin back into his family. So anytime you hear a Christian woman saying, it's my body, I can do anything with it, your answer is, no, it's not your body. You don't own it. Christ paid the price. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. You're much more than you think you are. 
you do not understand how precious you are. The covenant is essential. I'd like you for next week, between now and next week, to go over those passages and to meditate on any of those passages. Take one of those passages and go over it over and over again in prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to help you understand the importance and the meaning of the covenant in your life, in mine, and in the life of the church. So, hopefully, as you progress to this study, you will progress in your understanding of the covenant and through it, the love for the church, which is the embodiment of the covenant of Christ on the cross. May God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.